0: Hi, and welcome to Bread. This summer, we're beginning a new series that we're calling Jesus with People. And in it, we're drawing our attention to interactions that Jesus had with various groups in the book of Luke. In seeing how Jesus responds to people and how people respond to him, we see ourselves. And this helps us to be more fully aware of his presence, more fully alive, and better equipped to do his kingdom work here in our city. Take a listen. Um, Firstly, uh, a little bit of announcement. Um, If you were expecting Robin, uh, you may have noticed that I am not Robin. Um, He was due to speak today, uh, but he is not able to speak because um, he has COVID Uh, and uh, he found out yesterday afternoon So, we will reschedule, not schedule. Uh, um, And instead, you get me, I'm sorry. Uh, Thanks Tavs, you're very kind. Uh, Yes, it's me, um, and uh, we are, it's gonna be like a bonus talk, which is very exciting. Um, We are in a series on uh, Jesus with people from the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we've been looking at Jesus' various interactions with different people from that gospel. And um, we have two more left of that series. Uh, and this, though, will be like an extra bon- a bonus track, a hidden track. If you listen long enough, you will get there. Uh, and so um, we'll carry on. Good? Good. Let's see how this goes. Um, If it all goes wrong, I'll start doing what Robin does, which is basically just sort of prophesy to people in the congregation, and uh, we'll see how that is. Anyway, back to the point. One of the questions that Hannah and I are asked most often when people find out what we do, whether they're Christians or not, is uh, what sort of church is Bread? And it's often very difficult to answer that question because, as I'm sure you'd understand, it's usually loaded. They're not always saying what sort of church is Bread. They're saying... Uh, Would I be welcome there? Or uh, do you just want my money? Or are you anti-science, whatever anti-science might mean? Do you let women speak? That sort of thing. That's what people are asking. And so when uh, we first arrived, I found out pretty quickly that the two words I used to describe the church didn't mean uh, what I thought they meant to people here, particularly in the U.S. Because firstly, I would say Bread Church is evangelical. What I meant by that was that we believe the Bible is God's word and that we, um, the Bible communicates God's authority. But what most people tended to hear when I said, oh yeah, Bread Church is evangelical, is they tended to hear that that meant that we were therefore right-wing, ultra-nationalistic uh, in our politics. We were probably unconditionally supportive of Israel. We were anti-intellectualist. We were end times obsessed. We were rapture-believing, evolution-denying. Uh, And so their faces would either go, great, or they would fall. (laughs) And so then I would say, oh, but we're also charismatic. Meaning (laughs) that we believed in the New Testament portrayal that the life is one of the spirit that we are created for, that the spirit is given for everyone to um, fill them with his power and his presence, his gifts and his life. Uh, But for most people, that meant that we were all the things that they thought we were Um, when we said evangelical, but sort of double underlined, in bold, highlighted, and then also with flags, Uh, (laughs) we don't have flags. Now, for the record, I don't think evangelical or charismatic mean either of those things, but I realized I needed to find new words to describe us, because even though I think those words actually do mean what I think they mean, language is always evolving, isn't it? Because also those two terms in people's minds precluded us from, in their minds anyway, from necessarily believing or caring lots about other things that we did believe and care in, like justice and transformation of society here and there and social change and being vocally and demonstrably anti-racist and caring for the poor and not hating gays. I, um, we, we, as you'll see, there's a huge wall on here which um, runs along the 101, and we have the option to put a sign up for our church uh, to advertise us. And I've been thinking a lot about this. And the, the one I want to do is, um, it's a bread colon church. But we don't hate gays. That's what I want to put on there. I think it would be great. Um, but anyway, these are what people thought. Ironically, these things that we care about and believe, we believe because, not in spite of, our evangelical and charismatic convictions. Our faith, of course, is a social one. We are called to both become and transform society so that it might look like the kingdom of Jesus. But our ability to do that, both have ourselves transformed and see society transformed to look like the kingdom of God, rests almost entirely on believing the right things about King Jesus and what his kingdom looks like. That's the evangelical bit. And on being filled and empowered by his spirit to do that work, that's the charismatic bit. I want to suggest that the um, widely held sort of postmodern ideas about truth are probably, if they haven't been for some time, kind of well and truly over now in the coffin with all the nails in it. The idea of sort of relative truth in general in the Western world, that what's true for you is true per se, I don't think many people actually believe this anymore. So that what we now see on actually both sides of the political spectrum is a return to absolutes. Either you must be absolutely tolerant of everyone in a very sort of intolerant way, or absolutely intolerant of anyone who isn't only tolerant of the few things that you think should be tolerated, and vice versa. And the problem is, ultimately, this always ends up in violence. But what we have as evangelical Christians are some absolutes. But unlike any other absolutes in the whole wide world, these absolutes cannot and actually simply refuse to be reduced to pieces of dogma because Christian truth is a person who is completely, concretely true. He is the relational, dynamic, grace-filled person of Jesus. That's what we mean by absolute. And he is absolutely amazing grace, first and foremost, before everything. So, that is what everyone's looking for. I find it extraordinary. I was reading a report. It looks like the, the Democrats are going to win way more in the midterm elections. Now, I'm not trying to make a political point here. But how? And I'll tell you how. It's because no one really knows. Like, it's like everyone doesn't like everything. Now, doesn't that tell you that we're looking for something to believe on, to stand on? Jesus Christ... The absolute truth is something to pin your hat on, is something to stand on, and unlike every other form of belief in absolutes, he doesn't drag us down, he lifts us up. It's what everyone's looking forward to. He's the only truth that actually satisfies. So, we'll try and find a better word than evangelical or charismatic, but in the meantime, let's be evangelical, shall we, and let's also be charismatic. Because that is the other half of the story, the charismatic one. For many, many, many Christians, their faith is a slog. It's hard work. Often it feels actually just like one defeat after another, after another. It can become a real obligation. And if there was once a spark of joy and life in it, that spark has long been extinguished. The problem is I read the Gospels and I read the book of Acts and the depiction of the Christian life is anything but boring, trudgery, difficult in those senses. Now, it's very hard, admittedly, but there is transformation and healing and power and joy and refreshment on every single page. This is for no other reason than the first Christians following in the footsteps of Jesus himself were filled with the power of the Spirit. And they then went on to be filled over and over and over and over again. And everything comes to life. Without the Spirit, we are but dry bones, sitting in a dry crater of death. But with the Spirit, we are living beings, able to do and live an extraordinary life. So do not resist the Holy Spirit. He is the one in whose dimension of life we are all supposed to experience God. Get over yourself, I mean this, get over yourself and be a charismatic. Good. So, today's passage is um, Jesus. And it's Jesus with people, Jesus with the demon possessed. Oh yeah. It's a passage in which it's very difficult to circumvent either his absolute truth or the Spirit's transformative power. So this is from Luke 8, starting at verse 26. Then they arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he did not live in a house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus... He fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. He would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wilds. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? He said, legion for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now, there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the swine herds saw what had happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. I'm gonna stop there. Um, I was watching soccer with my daughter yesterday. Uh, We have to get up early to watch soccer. It was about 10 a.m. because it's British. And we were watching this, and then during the halftime break, uh, suddenly this Ad came on, which was the most scary thing I have ever seen. It was an advert for um, Halloween at Universal Studios, which for some reason was featuring the weekend, but I don't think that's an important detail. Uh, But it was of this woman who was absolutely terrified as these sort of evil spirit monsters were trying to stab her at 10 a.m. in the morning during a soccer game. Lola and I hid behind the sofa. Uh, We were petrified. I'm going to write a letter. It's inappropriate. Um, But what I realized was, it reminded me of something that I've always um, thought, was that actually, when it comes to culture, culture has very little problem believing in supernatural evil. Count the tarot readers and the psychics and the crystal healing cleansers and the ayahuasca adherents. However enlightenment-orientated or sort of rational we might appear to be, our culture still believes in the supernatural and still believes in in supernatural evil. And it's often us Christians, in fact, who have the hardest time believing it. Particularly, I think, the demonic. So even those of us who can get on board with maybe supernatural healing or supernatural authority over the elements or supernatural raising of the dead, people being spiritually, supernaturally demonized is for many actually too hard to come to terms with. It sounds all a bit backward and a bit sort of Harry Pottery, uh, which is a good name for a pottery shop or store. Uh, particularly if you're if you're called Harry, Harry Pottery. Anyway, of course the biblical perspective is that there is no equivocation. Supernatural good and supernatural evil is the biblical reality. Jesus is tempted by the devil He delivers countless people from demonic oppression and uh, by way of one example, Judas is said to have had the devil enter his heart, which is why he um, betrays Jesus in the end. So if we are going to take our faith seriously, we need to believe what we actually believe. Personal, Personal supernatural good, of course, but also personal supernatural evil, which is not to say though that the demonic is there around every corner. There is a strain of Christian belief and practice which puts an awfully large emphasis on the demonic. Essentially, here, demons are exclusively responsible for all the bad things that ever happened. Human responsibility, or simply the sort of fallen groaning nature of the cosmos, are given a backseat when it comes to things that aren't properly working in our lives. Rather, they are all the fault of demons. Mental illness? Demons. Physical illness? Demons. Moral shortcomings? Demons. Not getting what you want from life or relational conflict. All down to demons, 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 demons demons everywhere. So there's this sort of constant chopping off of demons, banishing demons, sending demons, tying demons up, because it's all demons whatever the presenting problem may be. Now we are right to be wary of such belief because it doesn't line up with what scripture teaches. In fact, the Bible is extraordinarily nuanced when it comes to the nature of human problems. Consider this from Jesus' teaching on Matthew 4. Sorry, it's not his teaching, it's what happens. News about him, Jesus, spread all over Syria. People brought to him all who were ill with various diseases those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed all of them. There is a clear distinction. On the one hand, there are physical problems. On another hand, there are those who are demonized. And on the third hand, there are those with mental illness. Having seizures is not a great translation of the Greek word, which is selei noisoumenos. It literally means moonstruck, people who stare at the moon. It's where we get our word lunatic from. Luna is the Latin word for moon. And lunatic is now a non-PC sort of, sort of pejorative word. But the original meaning uh, and the meaning of the Greek word here was essentially those suffering any sort of insanity or irrational behavior or seizures. It's basically those who are mentally ill. The point being that these are the distinctions that are drawn because Jesus heals the demonized who are not the same as the physically ill, who he also heals, who are not the same as the mentally ill, who he also heals. So let us follow the Bible when it comes to all of this human illness, mental illness, physical illness, illness, demonization, three separate categories. Jesus wants to heal it all. But we shouldn't lump them together. Uh, Before we move on, uh, a quick word on mental illness. It strikes me that this uh, has been, for a while now, one of the most pressing problems we face in this city and in this country, probably. I know there are myriad factors that contribute to this, but by way of just one example, suicide rates have gone up about 35% just in the last 20 years. And of course, uh, as we all know, and has been widely reported, uh, the pandemic has done no end to deteriorating people's mental health for lots of different reasons. So as a church, let us take it seriously. We need to use all the human natural tools at our disposal, counselling, therapy, community care, as well as prescription drugs when necessary. I think there's still a bit of a stigma about taking antidepressants or anything like that, but we would have no problem about taking Advil for a bruised knee, so why don't we have any problem about taking something that will help our brain work properly? We need all of those, but also we need all the supernatural divine tools as well, at our disposal. When Paul encourages us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, I take that literally. That as we offer ourselves to Jesus, he rewrites everything in us, including our brain chemistry. He literally renews our minds. Anyway, enough on that. Back to demons. So, firstly, the nature of being demonized. Demon possession is actually an inaccurate term. It comes from the King James Version, which was obsessed with land ownership, and it was basically uh, a term kind of pulled in from that, about who owns what. It's not the word in the Greek. But unfortunately, the NIV and most other translations mistranslate demonized as demon possession. The idea, though, that people have their whole lives taken over by demons and are no no longer operating with any degree of free will is not scriptural. Rather, As here in verse 27, the man is said to have demons. To be demonized, uh, which is what the Greek word literally means, in the biblical sense, is to be influenced or tormented or affected in some way by the demonic. So, can Christians be demonized? Absolutely. Christians, as one church leader used to say, can have anything they want. Secondly, the nature of demons. They are spirits, they are intelligent, they are malevolent. They manifest in different forms, and so the symptoms can be different. Here it's nakedness, living around tombs, screaming and shouting, an unusual physical strength. As such, it's a severe case, but throughout the Gospels, we see more and less severe uh, episodes than this. And importantly, on the nature of demons, demons don't want to leave. They rather like tormenting. The people that they're tormenting and would like to carry on undisturbed thank you very much verse 31 they begged him jesus not to order them to go back into the abyss they liked where they were demons do not like to be exposed so if by now you are worrying that you may be demonized the very fact that you are worrying that you may be demonized almost certainly means that you are not demonized Demons will not tell you that they are there. They want to just relax and be fine with the status quo. So don't worry. They don't want to be exposed, but they cannot help being in the presence of Jesus. Verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. When we um, first moved to LA, we had like six people in our living room and no money. It's a wonder that this church exists. But what we did have was some faith, actually, quite a lot of faith because we didn't have almost anything else. That's all we rested on. And we spent a lot of time praying. We, um, I met someone who was like a church-planting guru, and he was like basically saying, no, you've got to go and network and become part of a thing and raise money and uh, join this thing, and they can give you a whole um, church in a van that you draw up to the thing. And I said, no, we're just going we'll, we'll to pray. I think prayer will be better. And we just prayed. That's all we had, and we prayed, because we had some faith. And we saw some very powerful things, probably the most powerful um, prayer meetings I've been in, where there were four of us just praying. There was one moment where I was being prayed for by um, the other three, and I was so empowered by the Spirit that I was kind of there uh, on the floor um, with my hands going like this, going, oh, and the other three were like, nothing was happening to them, and they thought I was being very odd, and I kept saying, there's so much power. Come on, get it, get it, get it, there's so much power. And they were like, like, no, there isn't. Uh, But it was very powerful. But what was interesting to me was, us being empowered over and over again and seeing some really extraordinary things. This was opposed. Our two um, interns had gone from one of these meetings to go and run some errands. And on the way to the errand, they'd parked their car in the parking lot, walked in to this store, and a man who was there went straight up to them and screamed in their face, I like you. I like you when you're not here. Completely out of character and then returned to character. Because demons don't like it when Jesus' spirit is at work. A friend of mine um, was waiting to um, pray for someone who um, needed to be delivered. He'd shown all the signs of being delivered. Sorry, the girl had shown all the signs of being delivered. Um, but my friend was very uh, new to all of this. And he was very worried. And so he went to the bathroom before this um, time where he was going to pray with some other more mature people. And he started staring in the mirror, trying to psych himself up and talking to himself in a sort of um, rocky type way. You can do it. God's with you. It's going to be fine. But he was petrified looking in the mirror. Uh, And he walked out, and they started praying, and immediately this girl looked at him in a completely different voice and said, you were looking in the mirror, weren't you? It's pretty obvious then what's happening because demons don't like to be exposed by the presence of Jesus. They don't like a movement of the spirit. Because Jesus' presence exposes it, and secondly, Jesus' power destroys it. My first interaction with anything that was obviously demonic was, I was a very new Christian, and we were on a weekend away and uh, with the church. And a guy had come, um, for no reason he didn 't really know why he was there he 'd come to one week of a course we were running, and then he came on this weekend and The reason actually he 'd come was because his whole life was collapsing he 'd just been convicted for the third time of uh, drunk driving. He was a New Zealander who was going to be sent back to um, deported from the u k and his life was a mess So successful guy, but it 's all going wrong anyway he 'd come to this Christian thing because he had nowhere else to turn, and a guy had invited him, but he didn 't believe in anything he didn 't know anything he was just there. And we ask the Holy Spirit to meet people, and straight away, he is on the floor, um, and he is a big rugby-playing, massive New Zealander, screaming and shouting like a lion. He's roaring on the floor. There's me, there's another guy, there's an ex-NFL linebacker. We are all, I'm not joking, we are all trying to hold him down as he has this response to the Spirit meeting him. And it goes on for some time, and then he kind of coughs and splutters, and then he's all there, and he's completely at peace. All gone in a moment. What's so exciting was quite how dramatic a change happened to this guy. He was like, I, am, I can't get enough of it. He said, the church has got a real PR problem. You should tell people it's like this. This is amazing. That's what he'd say. He said, can I do your PR? He said, you're about to be deported. Stop it. Uh, but completely changed. He became a Christian. He moved back to New Zealand. He, he works in New Zealand politics now. Isn't that amazing? Uh, completely changed. This is the power of Jesus, to free people. Now, having said all that, in my experience, most people are not demonized. And to be honest, it's so obvious when someone is being delivered, we really don't need to worry about it at all. So do not worry, it'll be fine. When Jesus is delivering people, Jesus is delivering people, there's no kind of doubt what's going on. uh, And it's done usually in an instant. But the wider issue and what this story tells us from Luke, and actually the message of Jesus throughout the whole gospel declares that Jesus is Lord over all evil. And by that, I mean all natural and supernatural evil. Out there, in here, corporate and individual, societal and personal. And when he commands, demons flee. He doesn't call on anyone else's authority because he is the absolute truth. And he has come to set all of us free. Because all of us, to one degree or another, do need liberation. Not, as I said, most likely from the demonic but from any of the multitude ways in which the devil has sought to steal and kill and destroy parts of our lives. This theft will come from all sorts of different places. And let me tell you, none of us is immune. It comes from the stupidity of our parents and primary caregivers, those in authority over us at a young age they can and will have had a dramatic effect on us. A friend of mine, as a young uh, teenager, was told by his world-renowned Christian pastor dad that if his son ever had sex before marriage, he would cut off his... So for most of his adult life, my friend was crippled with sexual fear, self-destruction, very skewed ideas about sex and intimacy, but it was when he showed enormous courage to open himself to the theft that had gone on for him, what had happened to him when he was able to open himself to Jesus that he began, wow, I feel like I need to sing the blues. when he was able to open himself to the healing of Jesus, that he was restored. He's very happily now married for a long time because this is what Jesus comes to do. Another friend of mine was at a family gathering uh, quite recently and she and her adult siblings were there with their parents and their father, they were being hosted by someone, their father started to boast to the host about two of his children. They've done all these things, amazing things. Aren't they great? And after he'd done two of them, he looked around and went, now who else have we got? And couldn't find anything, not one thing, to say about the two other children who were sitting there. If your parents or those who were closest to you when you were growing up have not given you messages of value and worth. It is very understandable that God, to you, it will be very difficult to believe that he actually loves you. Or if it's not the stupidity of our parents and our primary caregivers, it will be the stupidity of religious leaders. If you have been told by a Christian authority that you are somehow a second-class citizen because of your race, because of your gender, because of your sexuality? How on earth can you hope to believe that you have a place or a role or any sort of status in the kingdom of God? Or if Christianity has been reduced for you to a religion, by religious authorities. Your religion will involve working for God's approval, being uncertain that you ever have it, and seeing him more as a judge than as the father that Jesus portrays him as. It will also mean that you'll be judgmental to other Christians, or you will be judgmental to people outside the church, or you will be judgmental about everyone. These attitudes are the opposite of what God desires for us and they are offensive to him just a cursory flick through the gospels will show you that jesus reserves his most vehement indictive against the religious authorities who stand in the way of the people receiving the grace that jesus has come for you need to understand and believe you are forgiven and that he loves you Or if it's not the stupidity of spiritual authorities, then it's the stupidity of other Christians. Our friends, even. Jesus' closest disciples often did not get it. They stood in his way. So what hope for the rest of us? Not much. So can we all agree together that we will save ourselves a whole lifetime of trauma and therapy by just admitting that other christians are really going to let us down and they are going to hurt us and they are going to harm us and we are going to need to forgive them for some of us this will take the rest of our lives it will be a very long process forgiving but let's just agree to do it so that we can rob the power of the theft from our lives it's not about them it's about us don't you want to be free and undoubtedly We're doing it to other people as well, aren't we? Or we have done. And finally, of course, there's also our own rank, stupidity. We involve ourselves in all sorts of things, don't we? To feel something different, to numb the pain, to escape the monotony. When all the while, what we're really doing, even knowingly, is continuing to participate in the great demonic, universal theft of goodness and life. Behold, Jesus is here and he has come to set all the captives free. Every single one of you. From whatever it is. I know I'm going on a bit, but I'm enjoying myself, so I'm going to carry on. Uh, A friend of mine tells a story about um, talking about the things of Jesus and the things of the Spirit. And uh, he was explaining it to people who'd never really been around, here, around it before. And there was a girl who had um, come on this, but she had, uh, throughout every talk, just sat uh, at the back next to a wall and curled up into a little ball through everything, through the worship, through the talks, through the prayer ministry. And my friend got more and more worried about her. Uh, There was a doctor uh, on this weekend, and he asked um, this guy, I'm worried about this, and he said, I think it's probably a catatonic state. This is quite serious. Anyway, uh, after the weekend, they'd gone back to the church. and It's a demon. um, They'd gone back to the church, and someone else was speaking. And for whatever reason, this person um, managed to get through to this girl with whatever he said. And... She came to the front. She hadn't said anything to anyone through the whole thing, completely, like almost impossible to get a word out of. came to the front and experienced the Spirit of God uh, so that she was there um, beaming, like her whole face had changed, completely changed in an instant. The next day there was a prayer meeting. She wasn't invited to it. Uh, she wasn't supposed to be there, but she couldn't stop herself coming because she wanted to tell everyone what had happened and it was about 300 people, and this person who couldn't say boo to a goose came... Is that a phrase to you? No, oh, shut up. Uh, I'm talking to myself. Anyway, uh, she, she, she was so shy, she wouldn't say boo to a goose. There you go. Um, this doesn't makes make sense. Anyway, she'd come, and she'd talk to these 300 people, stood up straight away. Couldn't. No one could stop her, and she said, um, I am trained to be a doctor, um, and... Uh, Um, But my whole life, I was abused, and I've been cutting myself, and I'm thinking about becoming a sex worker. Um, Such is my hatred for myself. And she then said, but in that moment, Jesus' power met me in such an extraordinary way that it's like all of this just left me and I could look into his face and receive his love, and I am a completely new person. I'm still aware of this woman. She is a well-qualified and incredibly successful um, doctor in London, completely changed. This is what Jesus comes to do. Most of church, we just sit around listening to doctrine and making sure that our doctrine is correct. As we come to a close, let's talk about the pigs. Everyone's always concerned with the pigs. (laughs) Poor, innocent pigs, why did they have to run off the cliff and die, won't someone think of the pigs? The truth is, you can read any commentary you like, there is no consensus about the meaning of the pigs, why the pigs, what happened to the pigs, is this a theological thing, is it whatever, no one knows. It's just weird. So, let's all spend a moment in silence as we remember the pigs. That'll do. But what is absolutely clear is that the pigs were worth a lot of money. This is a Gentile community, hence the pigs, and the pigs were a very, very valuable commodity. This is a whole herd of them. So, and actually the text even says it was a large herd. So what it's saying is that Jesus, for him, All the money in the world is nothing compared to one life. One human soul, far more valuable. Even the soul of an ostracized, shackled, deeply troubled man whom society has rejected. That's how much you're worth to him. Because he knows what he made you to be. Verse 39, which we didn't read. After the man was there sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right hand, he went away, verse 39, proclaiming through the city how much Jesus had done for him. Do you know, do you even believe how much Jesus would like to do for you? Nothing is out of his reach. His arm is not too short to save. And he wants to set you free from everything that holds you back. So just let him. Be bold. Take courage. And allow him by his power to return to you everything that has been robbed from you, everything that has been stolen from you, everything that has been killed in you. He will bring it all back to life because that's what he came to do. Amen moment let's stand shall we